Good morning, Collective Church. My name is Heath. I am a pastor up in the East Bay area, and it is a joy to join you this morning. And it's an honor to be asked by Ryan to do this, to participate in what God is doing in your church community. So thank you so much for having me. Um, I love uh, Ryan. It's awesome uh, co-laboring in the gospel with him. And um, even though I haven't met you, even though I've never been there face-to-face in physical presence, we truly are family. And I don't mean those as empty words or merely uh, rhetoric, but as the deep reality of who we are in Christ, which we will see here in our passage today. Um, so, So that said, I'm itching to get into the passage and let it do its work within us. We are in Mark chapter 3, verses 21 through 35 in this sermon series on entering the tension. So uh, let me pray and we'll get right into it. Well, Heavenly Father, it is a joy and a great gift to us that we can call you Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work and your grace, and we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, we can do nothing without you, and I certainly can't preach uh, a sermon that is helpful in any way, shape, or form without you. So would you do something wonderful today? Would you um, soften our hearts? Would you sharpen our minds? Would we fall more and more in love with you, Lord? And would you bless Collective Church? Um, Lord, uh, lead us forward. We love you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, there is a desire deep in the architecture of the human heart to be on the inside. C.S. Lewis says, we have a desire to be on the inner ring. And uh, there's no surprise there. We've all felt this in all sorts of different ways. Now, one of C.S. Lewis's most famous essays is called The Inner Ring, and he explores this drive of ours to be on the inside of a group that matters to us. So, so maybe in middle school, it's to be a, a part of the, the cool kids group. Maybe in high school, it's to be part of the varsity team. Maybe upon graduation, it is to be accepted into the Ivy League school or the state school um, that many in your family have gone to or many that you've looked up to have, have gone to. Or uh, maybe it's to be a part of the academy and, and to be in the circle of the PhDs or whatever degree it is. And maybe it's to be a part of that friend group or this friend group, the, the celebrity circle. Maybe it's Maybe it's to be a part of church leadership or just to be accepted in your own family. There is always some inner ring that exerts gravity on our hearts. Now, Lewis says it this way. He says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside it. Now, I know this might seem like a trivial example, but but in third grade, I mean, the memory still sticks with me today. In third grade, I had a, a circle of friends, a group of friends, and one recess, they literally said, you're out. Somebody new is in. No reason why. It's just you're out, right? It was a sad day on the playground for sure. It was like a living death to be excluded from those friends, from that circle uh, that I so uh, loved. And, you know, I've sensed this desire to be part of the inner ring in so many ways. And 
And honestly, it makes me wonder um, how many sermons, how many things in ministry I've done that were motivated by the desire to be part of some inner ring of people. Because I know that desire is there. And there's a danger in this desiring, this inner ring. Uh, the quest for the inner ring will break you unless you break it, says Lewis. We, we grab after, we clamor, we manipulate, we deceive, we hurt others all to be part of something, all to be accepted, all to be found worthy and wanted. But even though there's a danger to this, there is a reason that this desire is deep in the architecture of our hearts as we will see. And ultimately, the ultimate inner ring is the family. So, um, all this has much to do with Mark chapter 3. A quick word on the context of chapter 3 before we get into our text. So, the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has stepped onto the scene. Heaven has broken open into earth. The long-awaited Messiah has come. The promised hero has arrived. So, he arrives. He's baptized. The Spirit leads him, drives him into the wilderness, and there he is tempted by Satan. He's tempted by the serpent, and uh, he remains faithful, unlike Adam, and he, he basically he kicks the, the serpent out, right? He does what Adam didn't do. So he remains faithful, um, and then he enters into his public ministry, and one of the first acts of that public ministry is kicking a demon out of a man in a synagogue, then he goes about teaching and, and healing and restoring uh, and ministering. He heals the lame. He heals the blind. He cleanses a leper. The crowds, they pay attention to him. They're, they're all clamoring after him. He's created a counter community. Heaven has invaded earth. And he's called his disciples, 12 of them. 12, that's important, right? Drawing to mind the idea of the 12 tribes of Israel, he is at work both symbolically and at the deep level of reality, remaking the people of God. And so it's here that we pick up the story this morning. So he's just chosen his 12 disciples, and then we read in verses 20 and on the following. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind, right? He's gone crazy. And the scribes, the, the religious leaders who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. Truly, I say to you all, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. 
on to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. Now, if you feel like Mark took a story and just stuck it right in the middle of another story, you're you're right and you're quite perceptive. So the first thing I want to do is I want to draw attention to the structure of this portion of scripture as it will help us a great deal. Now, Mark is is brief in his writing, but he is still brilliant. His writing is, is pregnant. It is loaded with so many levels of truth. He often uses what is called uh, the sandwich technique. Now, that's the idea of putting one story in the middle of another story to frame the story that's in the middle and then to to have those stories uh, work together to draw out the interpretation that needs to happen. So let's look at what what this means. So we have here part A1, which is basically Jesus in a house surrounded and and he's teaching and then um, people, his family thinking he's crazy. So that's kind of the, the, the slice of sourdough. Then we get to the meat in the middle. And this is the religious leaders who have come down to basically police him and to do something about this upstart. And so they accuse him. And then Jesus has some brilliant responses through some parables. That's the middle. That's the meat of it. And then we get to the other slice of of sourdough here at the end. This is the A2 portion. And we have Jesus uh, again uh, in a house surrounded by people. And his family is trying to get to him. Now, the fancy gourmet word for this is intercalation. And it's the interlocking of stories. So so the key point, though, is, is this. The structure of these stories works to help interpret each other. So with that said, what do we see? What in the world is Jesus doing here? And it's actually really easy to go astray here because what we often do is we break this thing down into these atomic little bits. We break the passage apart, but this isn't about a when or how or where you can be rude to your family. This isn't about when you can ignore your mom. This isn't about calculating sins or, or a, a sin that it makes you too far gone. See, all of this, it all hangs together as part of something larger. There is a sum greater than these parts. Ultimately, This section is about Jesus's mission. It's about what he's up to in his world, what he is creating, and what it means to be his people. So three things as we open this up. First, this. The king is bringing his kingdom, and it's being resisted. You can already see that. The king is bringing his kingdom, and it is being pushed against. It is being resisted. Next, uh, we're going to look at the kingdom enemies and the kingdom family. And then the last bit, uh, the way of the kingdom. So that's kind of our roadmap this morning. So first, the king is bringing his kingdom and it is being resisted. So in the first part, uh, verses 20 and 21, 
Jesus is going about his father's work. He's healing, he's teaching, he's ministering. People are following after him, wanting to hear what he has to say. And in this scene, most likely he's at Peter's house in Capernaum, uh, the base of his operation for three years on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the swelling crowds, they've come, they've caused commotion, so much so that Jesus and the disciples can't even eat. And his family hears of it. And actually here, it doesn't say family. It's a little ambiguous in the Greek. It says um, those who were of his own. Um, So those who were close to him. And it says they believed that he was basically going off the deep end. His religious zeal was way too radical. He was acting against common sense and, and social norms. He would end up getting hurt, maybe even killed or embarrassing the family, which was like death in that culture. And so they had to save him from himself. He had gone mad. And so it says they went to seize him, which there's this interesting word here, kratain, or uh, the, the form is krateo in verse 21. And this word means to arrest, to take control, or, or to bind, right? They are trying to take charge of Jesus. So with, with this as the front end of the sandwich, then uh, this will help us see the other portions and it'll all work together. Now, Let's go to uh, the, the end bit, uh, A2, right? The, the other slice of, of bread of Mark's literary sandwich. So picking up at verse 31, it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers, they're outside, they are seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? And on he goes there. So Jesus is teaching inside a house with his followers. His disciples circled around him, listening to him. Uh, Large crowd, right? No social distancing. He's in a sea full of people all breathing on each other. Uh, And then the word comes from outside, right? His family, who you would imagine would be inside with him is geographically, spatially, and also philosophically uh, outside, right? They are outside from him. And it says these words that they are seeking him. And this word, another important word, uh, zetain or zeteo, this is used 10 times in the Gospel of Mark, all with the meaning of trying to control Jesus. So that parallels the first part, seeking to control him, to to, um, uh, bind him. So here again, we have this frame of family members trying to control Jesus. And again, the family is on the outside. But it turns out Jesus is not to be controlled. And I imagine if you're anything like me, you've tried it before and it just doesn't work. So Jesus cannot be controlled. He does not alter his mission based upon the opinions of men, uh, the paradigms of others, or the, the good intentions of others. He doesn't alter his course of action. He does what is right and what is good, even when we can't see what he is up to. Now, after all, by the way, his family loved him, right? They didn't want him to get hurt. They didn't want him arrested or, or beaten up or killed. And so it's their good intentions, actually, that has them trying to control him. So, but there's those around him, right? They're, they're sitting around him. And he says, these are my mothers. These are my brothers. We'll get back to that here in just a moment. Now, 
The key point that, that we should be picking up right now is this. There is a frame of attempted control of Jesus, even by his loving family. At this point, maybe recall Peter, right? Uh, there was a point where Peter wanted to alter Jesus' mission and control Jesus and stop Jesus from going that, uh, that cross direction, right? Going to Jerusalem. He said he's going to go and he's going to be crucified and he's going to die. And, and Peter says, no way. And what does Jesus do, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. So all throughout his ministry, people are trying to control him, steer him, and have him do something other than his mission to bring the kingdom. So the king has come. He's bringing his kingdom into the world, and his work is being resisted. And again, it's not just by those that we would dub, you know, the normal natural enemies, you know, the the Romans or political opposition, but even by family who loves him. See, it turns out that the right-side-up kingdom of heaven is upside-down to an upside-down world. If you're standing on your head, everything that's right-side-up seems upside-down. The kingdom looks crazy to an insane world because the kingdom is sane. The kingdom looks like foolishness to worldly common sense. The kingdom of love looks like hate to a world of self-sickness and narcissism. This opposition now, we're going to see, continues into the middle portion, of the, the meat of this sandwich. So in verse 22, we see that the scribes come down from Jerusalem and say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, um, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So what we have here are the religious leaders coming from Jerusalem uh, up to Galilee to do something about this backwater upstart who's causing them all sorts of problems. And I I believe Ryan earlier in the series called them a religious highway patrol with with their theological radar guns. They've come to catch Jesus. Now, Uh, Beelzebul, this word, uh, it means Lord of the high place or Baal the prince. And Baal was the the chief rival, uh, the chief enemy god of Yahweh. So this is certainly not a compliment. Um, And and it's crazy that they're saying Jesus is serving him. It's a little bit like saying Gandalf worked for Sauron, right? Or uh, Aslan was the agent of the White Witch. It just makes no sense. But it's their only recourse. Uh, They had to do something. I mean, they can't deny his power. They can't deny the fact that, that he healed um, the, the leper, that he healed the man with the withered hand. They can't deny the fact that he kicked the demon out of the guy in the synagogue. So they have to do something. So they did what the ruling class always seems to do when it's threatened, and that is this. They demonize the other. They launch a smear campaign. I mean... Modern politics have, a, have ancient roots. Uh, anyway, we won't go there. Let's keep moving forward. Uh, the king has come and he's being rejected, not only by family, but by the religious establishment, which it seems should have welcomed him home. So the heavenly kingdom is being resisted. Now, what is it that Jesus is doing? How is he bringing his kingdom? So two things here. So first, he's conquering evil, and second, he's creating a new community. He is creating a new family. Now, as Jesus is accused here, he unleashes his brilliance 
upon his enemies in order to love them. And this is where this uh, Markin sandwich really shines and helps us out. So the king has come. People are trying to control him, trying to bind him, but then he flips it. Rather, he says he is the one who has come to do the binding. So let's see what the text says. Verse 23 says, And he called them to him. So he called them all together. Uh, This phrase is used eight times when Jesus is about to drop something really important, some important bit of truth, some profound announcement. It's his way of saying, hey, pay attention, uh, stay sharp, this is key. And then it says he spoke to them in parables. He speaks in a way that draws out truth, that engages people, that reveals and conceals all at the same time so he's not crucified prematurely, but still is revealing who he is and what he's doing as the Messiah. So then he uses his razor-sharp reason here to refute their just incoherent thought. He says, look, if Satan is casting out Satan, how is that going to play? Um, If a kingdom is divided against itself, it's going to fall. So why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would I be an agent of Satan? Uh, That makes zero sense. It's like if members of your team start throwing punches at each other instead of throwing the ball and taking it down the field, you are ultimately going to lose. It's just not going to go well for you. So it makes no sense to say he's casting out demons in the name of Satan or Beelzebul. So he uses his reason to to push back against the incoherency of their thought. Now, at this point, he he continues with another parable, and it's it's something like this. He says, you know, if someone goes into Conor McGregor's house to steal his stuff, to take his Rolexes, to um, take his trophies, right, to get the keys to his Bentley, they better be a good fighter because they have to take him down first because he's not going to just let them walk out with the stuff. So they have to be a stronger man than the strong man. They have to be a better fighter than the champion in order to take the stuff and get out of there. And in short, Jesus has overcome the strong man by being the stronger man, right? Jesus has come to take his prize possessions from the strong man who's Satan. And those prize possessions are his people. They're you, they're me, they're they're us, they're his church all throughout the whole corridor of time. He has fought Satan, overcome him so he can take his prized possession, his people, which is his church. He is the stronger man that has come to bind the strong man. And by the way, this isn't just Jesus using logic. This is Jesus knowing his Bible, being scriptural. He is referring to Isaiah 49. And if you recall, when Mark starts, he talks about Isaiah, and Isaiah should be a lens by which we look at the book of of Mark. In Isaiah 49, God is saying to his people, um, you're you're captive and you're bound, and I will show you that I am your God, and I will come and I will contend for you against the one who contends with you, and basically I will bind the strong man. He is referring to Isaiah here as well as just being stunningly brilliant. So, with that said, he has come to conquer evil and bring restoration. He is on mission to destroy the works of Satan. It's like John says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to come, to conquer, to take down evil, to lift up love. 
So he's come to restore the fractured world, to re-garden the world as it were. And in Luke chapter 4, when, when Jesus comes into Nazareth to launch into his, his public ministry, he stands up in the synagogue and he reads from the scriptures and he reads Isaiah uh, 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's, that's the year of the Lord's release. Freedom has come. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, but ultimately you won't accept me. And they don't. In fact, they reject him so much so that they try to throw him off a cliff. His heavenly kingdom is coming into earth, but the entry creates incredible friction. There is a war going on. And so he combats the Satan and he restores. And, and this restoration means the reestablishing of family, uniting mankind and God, uniting humanity brother and sister. He's called 12 disciples, as we've seen. He's creating a new people. And this is why he says what he says about his family in these verses. So let's pick up here at verse 33. He says, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And we need to understand in light of all that's going on, Jesus is not just being rude. Jesus isn't unkind. He's not a jerk. He is saying, in light of my mission, what I'm doing, bringing the kingdom, I'm, I'm creating a new family. And here they are. My true family are those in a circle around me. It's those who abide with me. It's those who do the will of God. He's not devaluing biological family. He's actually just setting it in its proper place, giving priority to God's family that he is making through his work. And it's true, blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. And Jesus is not just tearing down the work of the devil. He is building up the family of God. And this is a family of apprentices. It's a family of those who sit at the feet of Jesus, who abide with him, who spend time with him, who do what he says. And so uh, the ones who are in the kingdom are those who abide with Jesus, who obey him, who do God's will. And, and it's so counterintuitive. There's a tension here. Sometimes it's those who we think that should be in that are on the outside. And those who are on the outside that are actually in, it's, it's those obvious choices. Uh, Jesus' biological family, the, the wealthy ones who are blessed by God or the well-known, the, the uber-pious, the religious superstars, those with seminary degrees, those ones should be in. But they're actually like physically and spiritually outside. And it's the outcasts, it's the marginalized that are in. And so notice, Jesus turns the inner ring thing inside out and on its head. The ultimate inner ring, 
The kingdom of heaven is not for the elites. It's not for the powerful. It's not for the skilled. It's not for the beautiful. It's not for the rich. It's not for the savvy. It's for the humble and the needy. He opens up the kingdom for everyone, anyone, people of every class, race, status, or gender. He makes them family. And the church isn't just people that we attend a service with. The church is true family, family made by the blood of Christ, by His Spirit. And our flourishing is wrapped up in the flourishing of the others in the family. We live and die together, so to speak. We flourish together as the family of God. And on this note, by the way, do you want to know why the shelter-in-place bit has been so difficult for us as churches? It's not just that you know we miss sitting with somebody who happens to share some theological opinions with us. It's that we aren't with our family that we are called to be with. We're not sitting with each other, eating with each other, singing together, laughing with each other, praying with each other. All those things have been pulled away and it makes us ache. And it's just, it's because we're not mere acquaintances. We are actually family. Blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. And we are feeling that in these days. Jesus has made us family by giving us a whole new family tree. His spirit has made us brothers and sisters. And so when you see and treat each other as family, you are participating in the renewal of all things. You are bearing the love of God and the love of the kingdom, and you are kicking back the darkness that Jesus has defanged by his work. So, the king is bringing his kingdom, and it is being resisted, and it will continue to be resisted as we bear it. Um, The king conquers his enemy, and he turns enemies into family. He creates family. And now the way of the kingdom here. Uh, This is the controversial bit. So uh, let's look at verses 28 through 30 here. Often called the unforgivable sin, but let's read it. That's a bit of a misnomer. Here's what it says. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, the idea is that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit is at work through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Jesus is doing the good and the beautiful and the redeeming work of God. And to deny him, to deny the only hope of salvation, to deny the only hope of release from darkness and captivity is to stay in darkness and captivity. This unforgivable or this eternal sin isn't some random sin that kind of tips the scales over into the I sinned too much territory, now God can't do anything with me. I kind of reached the boiling point of rebellion and now it's, it's hopeless. Rather, it is refusing the work of the only one that can redeem and restore us. And so ultimately, it's more helpful to translate this as eternal sin because the consequence of not trusting Him, the consequence of not repenting and turning to life is eternal. So all sins can be forgiven if one repents, but the sin of being unrepentant, 
of denying the benevolent work of the Spirit leaves us in the darkness. And with that, I want to say that it's really easy here um, because of the, the language to focus on this, the exception, this eternal sin part, and to miss what's being said. I mean, listen to what Jesus says. He says, all sins will be forgiven. All of them. Your lust, your anger, your, your adultery, your, your apathy, whatever it is, no matter how bad it is, all of that can be forgiven. How? How is this possible? By the perfect life and life-giving death and resurrection of Jesus, which, by the way, is here in this passage if we have the eyes to see it. And, and here is the twist. And this is the brilliance in the structure of these passages. So recall, right? The first portion, part A1, family wanting to bind Jesus. That's a piece of bread, right? And then in the middle is the meat. Jesus binding the strong man to make family as he brings his kingdom to this earth. And then the other slice of meat, A2, that's family wanting to bind Jesus. So what you have is like within the framework of his own people wanting to control and bind him, Jesus reveals that he actually binds the strong man. Jesus binds the strong man, Satan, by, strangely enough, actually being bound by his people, by being shackled, by being handled, by being abused, by being put on a cross, by being rejected, by being crucified. It's in his binding, it's in his death that he plunders the house of the strong man. He frees us. He frees the people from their sin. He is stronger than death. And then he leads his people on a parade of victory out of captivity. Like God who goes into Egypt to free his people from the slavery and the tyranny of the Pharaoh, Jesus goes into the pit and the sin of death to break the back, to crack the back of Satan. And he frees his people, giving them life so that they might live by the law of love. He conquers the strong man with the strength of love, giving his life for his friends, and in turn calls us to walk a similar way, to lay down our lives, to love each other, that enemies might become family for the glory of Christ. He's made us the children of God. He's given us his, his spirit, and we're family now, inside the ultimate inner ring, the kingdom of heaven. And guys, this inner ring is no click, but an opening and a widening circle. It's a people who desire for more to come in, for more outsiders to be made insiders, for more people to be made family, for more to sit at the feet of Jesus as his apprentices, to abide with him and to obey him. Now, I know that was a lot, but, but let's, let's bring this to a close here. Uh, Church, I, I get that this doesn't sound sexy and epic, and this may sound a bit mundane, but when you treat the church, when you treat each other as true family, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, and the kingdom is gaining ground. And when you love your enemies, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven through you. 
He is plundering the strong man's house and he is freeing captives. He is taking out what is precious to him and that is his children. And he's breathing life into them now as family members. The church is a family, a true family in deepest essence, not just a collection of families that gather together, but a family in its own right on a glorious mission made by the very blood and breath of God. So may we confidently say with the Apostle John, as he says in 1 John 3, 1, See the kind of love that the Father has lavished on us, that has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are.